as we move forward into the kind of future that the Lord has for us this year. Um, we're going to try this one more time. We tried this a few months ago. Does anyone know our church's vision? I'm just waiting. Anyway. That's our mission. That's why, why do we exist? We want to help lead people who become fully devoted followers of Jesus. And yes. Our vision, we have this big, hairy, audacious vision. It's not something we can accomplish on our own. It's something that we need God's direction, provision, and inspiration to do. And it's also something that actually won't uh, just happen through cascades alone, but through God working in his church. And it's to see our city renewed. It's the renewal of our city. Renewal is what happens when people recognize Jesus Christ and begin following him. They live in his presence, and they live in the reality of his reign and kingdom on earth. And we believe that God not only wants to renew us, not just our church, but our city. He has come to renew all of his creation, and we long to see God's streams of living water cascade down into people, their families, communities, and our city and beyond as they encounter him and take steps of faith towards him. And so here's what this means. By simply existing, by, by living, by virtue of their connection to Jesus, people who are devoted to Jesus and committed to his way contribute to renewal. People who are devoted to Jesus and committed to his way contribute to renewal. Now that sounds super simplistic. People devoted to Jesus, committed to his, living his way. But why? Why would that be the case? It's because if you live this w- in this way, you become this walking renewal. Renewed followers of Jesus share the life of God with others. Now in April, when we had our last Vision Sunday, one of our calls to action was to be part of a community group. And you know what happened? God spoke to some of you and started leading you. And I had a couple of you come to me and say, hey, you gave us like this call to be part of a group, but you didn't even give us like a way to do it. You didn't give us an on-ramp. You didn't, get, like, you didn't clarify that. And there's people who want to do it, but you didn't really give us any of that. And I resonated with hearing that, and I understood what, what was being shared. And I heard people say, like, there's this desire for community, but I don't know how to make it work. And I also just felt this tension others have shared of, like, we talked about how, you know, when you first meet our community and you see all the beautiful things in it, it's like this heavenly stage, you love it. But over time, you start to see all the warts and you start to think you don't love it. You're like, how can I be around these people? How can they think this way and talk this way? And that's this hellish stage. And that's a very normal thing in being in a community. And some of you heard that and you're like, oh my goodness, this has been me. But the call for us is to move beyond that, to hold that tension of recognizing that we're not just totally heavenly and we're not totally hellish. We're something in between. And God is doing a work in us. And what happened over the next four months after that Sunday was God providing training and development for two new community groups on top of the ones that were already running. And that was the Spirit of God moving and translating these things into our lives. And I think God wants to do something similar today. So this morning what I want to do is outline three ways that you can step into what I sense the Lord is wanting to do among us and through us this year. So the first one is this. Come expecting to encounter God on Sundays. 
Super simple, I know. Come expecting to encounter God on Sundays. God longs to meet with his people. We just passed Christmas. Christmas proclaims that God has come to us in Jesus, that he wasn't content to stay in heaven. He came to us and he became one of us. You know what Jesus will tell his disciples when they gather together? It's probably some of your uh, favorite uh, verse. It comes from Matthew chapter 18, verse 20. Jesus will say to them, For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. It's a beautiful promise that he is with us, that he is God with us, Emmanuel, that he wants to make his home with us. You know, if you go back to the story of the Bible and you look at Israel, when God sets Israel free from slavery, what does he do? He creates this covenant with them, right? And he gives them these commands. But does he just give them these commands and just leave them to figure it out on their own? No. God doesn't just give his people a map for life and then say, go and follow the map. I'll meet you at the end, okay? That's not God's MO. His desire has always been to be present among his people and for them to find their direction, their provision, their identity, their peace, their hope in him. And he promises to lead his people and provide a place for them to live. And he doesn't just give them this map in the story of Israel. Instead, he promises to give them himself. To be their guide. Who provides, who heals, who dwells with his people. And it's the same thing that he does with us. He doesn't just give the church a map or some instructions and then leave us to figure it out all on our own. The way he he does that is through giving us the Holy Spirit who will lead, direct, inspire, empower, heal, and teach us his will, which is to follow the way of Jesus. God wants to lead us. He wants to lead you, and he wants to direct your steps. He wants to be your teacher, the teacher, not just a teacher. He wants to guide your decisions, the things you're wrestling through right now, about your finances, your relationships, your future, and he wants to give you his perspective. He wants to be the one who forgives, who declares forgiveness, healing, He wants to strengthen you. And one of the ways he does that, not the only, but one of the key ways he does that is when his people gather on Sundays, when we gather to worship. God uses these ordinary things that we do on Sundays to mediate his grace to us. Things like singing songs to him, about him. Songs have a way of expressing our emotions and instilling truth into our hearts. I was talking with Kenny this week just about how I didn't, didn't give me permission to share this, so he'll have to forgive me after. But I was talking to him about how my kids, through songs, learn so quickly. And all these Christmas songs that we were singing, they're just singing them out as they play with their toys, but there's been something that they've internalized. Songs have a way of teaching us truth, of instilling truth, so that later on we're in a different situation and we can draw that out. Songs teach. They shape us. They form us. Singing and learning often go together. Paul will write in Colossians 3, verse 16, he says, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your heart. When we take communion, this picture that we have of bread, Christ's body, this cup, Christ's blood shed for us in communion. There's this tangible and physical items that we have that declare to us the wonder of God's great love for us in Jesus, that he would lay down his life for us. It declares God's forgiveness for all of our rebellion, for all of our sin, for all of our mistakes because of Jesus' death. 
It declares we've been united to God, that our future is forever tied with God's. And it declares peace to us, between God and us, between us and one another, that we are God's beloved children, that he wants us, these are the things he wants us to remember every Sunday, every time we take part in communion. Through these ordinary things, God wants you to experience his renewing, empowering presence. We were made to know him. And something happens when we make ourselves open to God, speaking to us each Sunday. When we make room for him in our lives to have his way. Our world, our culture is not neutral. Every culture sets out to form people in what it deems to be good, true, beautiful, what, whatever the vision of the good life is. Every culture has a way of forming you into something, into their image of the human ideal. And our culture isn't seeking to form us into people who look like Jesus. So we cannot expect that if we just live the way everybody else does, that we'll somehow end up reflecting Jesus in his love, in his care, in his truth to other people, to even ourselves. Jesus isn't king in our culture. He's not sovereign over everyone's lives. He is in one sense, but in another sense, people don't recognize that. And so the dominant message is that we are sovereign over our lives. We call all the shots. And when we live like that, when you decide what is true, good, and beautiful, this comes to deform our hearts. Our loves become disordered, and our life will become disordered. But we want to be a community. Part of our vision is to be a people formed, shaped, molded, into people who look like Jesus in how we love, in what we love, in what we think, in how we think, in how we talk. That's what being devoted to Jesus is about. It is ultimately becoming like him. Worshiping with us is one of the most counterformative things that you can do because our Sunday gatherings are intentionally about making room for Jesus to meet us and form us into people who look like him. So here is your call to action this year is to make attending on Sundays a priority in your life. Aim to be here. Come on Sundays and ask him and invite him to speak into the different areas that you're struggling with where you need his direction. Don't come just because, you know, you're thinking, oh, they're going to notice if I don't come. It's It's not like that at all. Come because you believe God is interested in transforming you into something that you are not right now. That's the promise that he makes to the disciples when he says, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. They are not. They're fishermen, but they're not fishers of men. They're not fishers of people. The promise he gives them is like, if you follow me, I'll make you into something you're not. And that's the same promise he gives to us. So come believing that the living God is interested in your life, in our city, and that he wants to speak to you. The second thing to invite you into is make following Jesus together a priority. Make following Jesus together a priority. Why? Why that? Why, why, like, why did you have to add in the together? People are difficult enough. I'm still in the hellish stage, okay, Alex? Please, give me some room. Make, Jesus, make following Jesus together a priority. Why? Because this is the way... He intended for things to work. The background of his first disciples were that there was this mixed bag. It was pretty diverse. You had religious zealots, tax collectors, sex workers, fishermen. He created a community of difference and made them one. 
And one of the side effects of following Jesus then is that he's going to put you in the company of others, people who are different than you, who have experienced different things than you, communicate differently than you, see things differently than you sometimes. And discipleship that ignores community that he loves, the community, the people that he loves and laid down his life to rescue and renew is not really discipleship. Because you're actually ignoring this portion this part of what's central to actually following Jesus. There is so much that we can have and have emphasized in our life that would divide us from one another. But the gospel declares that through Jesus Christ, God has created one new humanity. No longer based on their ethnicity or their history, their failures, but they are united by Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus doesn't erase all of our differences. It's not like those things no longer exist or no longer matter. It's not like that at all. It's just that in Jesus, we find a new way to live that isn't governed by those other identity markers. It's governed by being marked as a child of God. And that happens when you first put your trust in Jesus and God sends the Spirit to dwell in you. You and I have been united through Jesus And that unity is greater than anything that could divide us. So you could be on polar opposite ends of the political spectrum, but because of Christ, you've been united. You can cheer for the wretched flames, the miserable oilers, or the terrible team in Toronto that doesn't get to be named. But because you have Christ, you have the greatest thing that anyone could have. And I know sports is a really simple example. And when you talk about politics, it's a lot harder. But we have to be a people who actually believe that Jesus is the greatest gift you could ever receive. And that in him, we are being made into a new humanity. That he has united people who are different. And because of that, because of what he has done, we have a part to play in actually keeping the unity he created. And the way that happens is by sticking in community, even when it's hard. Jesus really is greater than all those other things that make us different. He unites. All of us have been given the same Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And this is why Paul in Ephesians 4 verse 3, he will say, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Refusing to let people into your life and refusing to enter into others' lives because you've grown disillusioned with people and their ways is not a good enough excuse. Disillusionment, tension, and conflict is normal in relationships, but you can't stay there. And it's how we respond to these things that matter. There is something about sharing life and our burdens with others that brings Jesus great joy and honor. And Paul will write in Galatians 6 verse 2, he says, Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Now I was thinking, what, like, trying to think of like... Uh, an analogy for what following Jesus together is like. And here's what it's not. It is not like doing a triathlon. One season you sprint, another season you're swimming, another one you are riding a bike. It's not a demonstration of your own ability to keep going. Yes, you are all going in the same direction. Yes, you all have the same end goal when you enter into a triathlon. But the thing is, in a triathlon, it's ultimately dependent on your strength, how well you've trained, your own stamina. But for where Jesus is taking us, for the things Jesus wants to do in us, 
You cannot go it alone. Those of you who have tried it, you know what I'm talking about. It just doesn't work that way. It doesn't go well. I've, tri- I've tried to do it my, on my own, more out of just being naive. And eventually, you know where it got me? It got me right back where, where I was trying to get out of. Out of the things I was trying to get out of, I've just found myself right back into it. Why? Because I wasn't meant to try to follow Jesus on my own while having nobody to journey with. My friends, though I loved them, they weren't interested in going on this journey with me. And they couldn't always help me make decisions that honored Jesus. But they were the only friends I had. And I'm not trying to say we never have friends who don't love Jesus or identify with him. I'm just saying, if we never journey with the people of God, we're missing something. John Tyson, he speaks, speaking of followers of Jesus, he says, it's got to be us together. One person can't hold out against the whole culture forever. You need brothers and sisters. We need each other. And your story may be the exact thing that somebody else needs. That's why following Jesus is more like getting into a rowboat with others. You all row in the same direction. And there are times where the winds and waves of life will hit you and it's scary and it's hard. But you are not alone. And it's not just you and Jesus in the boat. You have his people with you. And so sometimes you will be so tired, so worn out, maybe even discouraged that you stop rowing. But because you are in the boat, others are rowing. And you're still moving in the right direction. They help you move in the right direction. Other times it's you doing that for others. You're not relying on your strength alone. You are with others. And I think sometimes we lose sight of the gift of life shared, of life together, as Diedrich Bonhoeffer called it, his people sharing that. In 2017, there's this organization called the Vancouver Foundation. They surveyed about 3,800 people in our city. 25% of them shared that they feel lonely at times, and 33% said that they find it hard to make new friends. And the group that most frequently reported feelingly alone were people between the ages of 24 and 34. This is before the pandemic. So I'd be curious to find out about the numbers now. The effects of loneliness are not just spiritual or emotional. Dr. Richard Schwartz, he's a psychiatrist who's written a lot about the issues of loneliness on society, and he's written a book um, with his wife, Jacqueline Olds, called The Lonely American. And in an interview he did with a journalist from the Boston Globe, he says, beginning in the 1980s, study after study started showing that those who were more socially isolated were much more likely to die during a given period than their socially connected neighbors. Even after you corrected for age, gender, and lifestyle, choices like exercises and eating right, loneliness has been linked to an increased risk of cardiovascular disease and stroke and the progression of Alzheimer's. One study found that it can, it can be as much of a long-term risk factor as smoking. We don't think of loneliness in that way. I'm not just trying to say that loneliness affects us spiritually. It, it can. It does. There are these physical effects too. We were meant to be in community, following Jesus together in community. It's this antidote to the loneliness that plagues many of us. We need each other. And we need each other if we're going to be the people that God intended for us to be. There is so much that can easily divide us and that can isolate us, causing us to feel alone and anxious. And somehow we have bought into this idea that we can follow Jesus on our own with little support, accountability, or vulnerability with others. And that's just not it. 
That's not how this life was meant to be with Jesus. We need each other. We need you, and you need us. And in a city that is aching with loneliness, we must be a people that invite others in. We must be a people that let others in. We must be a people that shares the joys and sorrows of life. And people that model the vulnerability and humility that our city longs for. And I'm not saying, look, some of us are more introverted, so that's not going to look the same for every single one of us. But there is this issue that is present in our city, and many of us have experienced it. And part of being the people of God is actually stepping into that gap and following Jesus together and inviting others in. So here's our call. Make following Jesus together a priority by getting into a community group. Don't try to do the triathlon. Get a rowboat with others seeking after Jesus. So here's what I'm going to do. None of the community group uh, facilitators or representatives, they they know about this, so now you know. Uh, After the service, if you can come up here, just be here. And if any of you who aren't in a group and are interested in being one, want to ask or know more, just come up here. There are a few different groups running. I think I have a slide for it. Um, They'll just tell you, um, I think it's, yeah, that one. Just tell you a few different areas. Uh, Sorry, Monday morning men's group. I don't know what time you guys meet, so uh, it's in the morning. Some meet on Zoom, some meet in person, some are uh, co-ed, some are just uh, women's. If you're not part of a group, I encourage you to be part of one, to step into a group and share life together. And so, community group uh, people, if you don't mind just coming up here after the service and being available, that'd be a huge help. Here's the third thing. Invite Jesus into your pain. Do you notice there's something like, there's something simple about all of these things, but there's also something very challenging about all of these things. Invite Jesus into your pain. If you want to contribute to renewal in our church, in our city, invite Jesus into your pain. We want to be a community that is spiritually and emotionally healthier by having dealt with our past sins, our grief, and shame. We want to be people who know how to deal with and practice dealing with our sin, our pain, in God-honoring ways. So we have to go beyond the surface. There's this quote, it's pretty well known by this guy named C.S. Lewis. He says, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. In the summer, I hurt my back in a very typical way. I picked up my son and I hurt my back. I hurt my shoulder blade specifically, and it caused this muscle to spasm. And it felt like muscles all around here were like just tightening, and it felt actually really hard to breathe for a moment. I didn't understand what was going on. It was very painful, and so I decided, through Lindsay's encouragement, she's like, we have benefits. Go. Go to massage therapy. Get this dealt with. We were about to go camping like the next day or that weekend, and so I didn't want to have to think about having this awkward pain every time I moved this side of my shoulder. And so I was like, yeah, she's right. She's right. It pays to listen to Lindsay. So I went, and I told him about the pain, what was going on, and he just said, okay, you have this issue. He, he had me lying down, right? And he's like looking at my, my shoulder blades, and he's like, oh, there's a very clear issue we have here, Alex. He's like, on your left side, you see this part of your shoulder? It has very clear, like, there's muscles here. The other side has none. It's just kind of bone, okay? 
<laughs> so he, he didn't pull punches. He just told us that. He's like, so you need to strengthen these muscles on this side, on your right shoulder blade and on your back. They're so weak that the muscles around your shoulder blade and back uh, have been overcompensating. And so when you picked up your son, all these muscles, just that one muscle there was activated and it's not strong enough to do that. And so it just seized up. And so he's like, I'm going to get rid of the pain for you today. But if you don't strengthen these muscles, this will just happen again and again and again. And I heard that and I was like, oh, shoot. This, this is like so many of us, myself included. Because what he highlighted is this thing. There's a difference between pain relief and restoration. Between pain relief and healing. Sometimes I just want the pain to go away, but I don't want the underlying causes, the things that I'm actually doing to contribute to the pain, to be dealt with. How many times do we do that? We pray perhaps for healing, but what we really want is pain relief. We want the pain to stop, but we don't want to participate in any of the healing or restoration that God must bring if there's going to be lasting health in our lives. We want that to stop, but we don't want to change the way we've been living that has allowed that pain to get as bad as it is. What Jesus wants to do is to remove that pain to strengthen you, to restore you. See, becoming like Jesus is living through a lifelong renovation led by the Spirit of God. And like a home that needs to be completely gutted, Jesus is not interested in just a superficial restoration. Slap some new paint on the walls, but everything underneath is no good. He wants to properly restore your life. And the places that he wants to restore are those places of pain that you have. What places of pain? Well, there are tons. There are tons that we have. And it'll vary depending on the person. But there are those parts of our life where our old nature, apart from Jesus, have, uh, hasn't fully disappeared. That the wounds that we've experienced haven't fully healed. Where there's a gap between the kingdom Jesus brings and our current reality. And... This may not apply to all of us, but I think that there, there are three areas that at least I'm aware of when praying for our community and just thinking through that are present. It's not an exhaustive list. There's just these three that I think Jesus wants to heal and set us free from so that we can experience more of his life. One is his pain of people-pleasing. We are a very relational church. We love harmony. The shadow side of that, though, is that some of that comes out of people-pleasing. Second one is this pain of taking on tasks that God never gave you. They didn't ask you to take on. You took it on. You found yourself exhausted. And the third is this pain from unresolved wounds. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul writes saying that he had to confront Peter because his fear of upsetting people was hurting others. And so Paul confronts Peter because of his hypocrisy. He was changing the way he was behaving when this one group, they were called the Judaizers, they would come, they thought that all people who converted to Jesus, who put their trust in him, had to first, males had to first be circumcised. And then, then they could be associated with. And Paul's like, that's not the gospel. That's not, that's not it. But Peter, what he did is as soon as that group came, he changed his behavior. 
And it was done out of this fear. So Paul confronts him because it was dividing the community of God. See, people pleasing causes us to compromise ourselves out of a fear of disappointing others. We don't make decisions out of love for others or what we believe is a wise course of action, but instead we make decisions based on what we think will cause the least amount of conflict or make people happy. Underneath Peter's behavior was this reality. Peter's fear of disappointing others was stronger than his fear of disappointing God in that moment. Peter cared more about what, the, uh, what others would say about him than what God would say about his behavior. See, people-pleasing uh, people creates so much internal stress, anxiety, and discomfort, all because you're trying to avoid discomfort and disappointing someone. And in essence, you're tippy-toeing around their feelings. And it's exhausting, and yet so many of us live with this in our hearts. And you cannot be the person that God created and redeemed you to be if you care more about others say about you than what God does. He is not simply interested in you just stopping people-pleasing. He wants to heal you of this internal belief that your sense of worth and security comes from your peers. He doesn't want you to be captive to what others will think of you. He wants you to, to set you free, to live in the truth of what he thinks of you. Now, the pain of taking on tasks that God never gave you is different. So we will see an issue, and it grieves us, and it bothers us, and rather than seek God... We take it on our own. I'm not talking about like you just see the uh, sink full of dishes dirty and you're like, oh, that's my burden. I got to do it. No, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about these bigger things in life where maybe it's at work. Maybe it is within our, our, our family or our community. We see an issue and it grieves us and we don't even think twice about it. We just jump in and we begin to take it on. But we realize it's much larger than we anticipated. And all of a sudden we feel drained and we feel stuck, and we start to get bitter. But we were never asked to do it. We were never invited to do that. And we carry this responsibility for things that we aren't supposed to carry. So we get worn out, irritable, bitter, restless, wondering why no one else is helping, wondering if this is what God really even wants. We see a problem when we assume that it must be us who has to solve it because we've seen it that God must want us to do it, and that if we don't, it'll only get worse. In First Samuel, King Saul, before leading Israel into battle, Samuel the prophet tells Saul to wait until he arrives and offers a sacrifice to God. But when Samuel's delayed, Saul has a problem because the, the soldiers that are waiting to go into battle are starting to get restless, and Saul gets fearful that they will leave and he will have fewer soldiers to fight with. And so what he does in that moment of fear, worry that things are only going to get worse because Samuel's taking so long and he doesn't know where he is, is he makes this sacrifice before God. He steps into it and he tries to justify it as, I'm doing the right thing. We've got to make sure we do this before we go into battle. But that's not what he was asked to do. That's not what he was told to do at all. Rather than show that he was obeying God, he revealed that he only wanted to follow God on his terms. Saul believed his fears that the things would only get worse if he didn't step in and start doing it himself. But offering that sacrifice only made things worse. And see, we all have limitations in our lives based on our age, our job, our family, our health, our personalities. We also have ethical limitations that Jesus gives us. But when we ignore these limits, we do damage to our souls. We wound ourselves and others. And at the root of it is this fear. Yes, we're exhausted, but we've not trusted him. 
And it's this fear of not having control, a fear of whatever that worst case scenario is. And Jesus wants us to enter into and, and allow him to speak his words of love, which are able to cast out all fear into those situations. Finally, God wants to heal us and heal those who are walking in pain from unresolved wounds. There were things that maybe you had and, and did that helped you survive through painful experiences, but now that you've grown older, you've come to see that these same things that helped you survive are not helping you thrive. They're getting in the way. There's this unresolved pain and hurt, and it doesn't come out all the time. So in many ways, you feel like it's okay until something comes up and causes it to come up again. And God is interested in bringing healing so that you don't have to use those kinds of coping mechanisms that you don't even like anymore. So you don't have to express your stress in a way that is harmful to you and others. So you don't have to overreact every time the stressor hits. And often it's the stuff in our families of origin. But it can be more recent personal failures or wounds in the workplace that have impacted our self-confidence or sense of security. It could be broken trust that has undermined your ability to trust others. And it's getting in the way now. It's affecting your life, your relationships, the level of peace that you're living with. Where's the pain in your life? These are just three I've highlighted, but you probably know already. You feel it. You're aware of it. What I want to invite you to do is to turn to Jesus, the healer. He is willing to heal and lead you. But you must decide to trust in his way. You must invite him into those areas and ask him to heal. He is ready to begin the work. Are you, though? There has to be this part where you're like, it's got to be you. I can't carry on living this way. Over the coming weeks, what we want to do is explore what emotionally healthy spirituality looks like. What it means to experience life to the full that Jesus offers. You can trust him with your pain, with your healing. He is patient. He is gentle. He is kind. And he will show you how to really live. And one of the way 